Last week, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced a pause on the distribution and use of Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine. The pause came amid reports that six women who had received the vaccine had developed rare blood clots. The concern this is brought up around J&J's vaccine mirrors earlier concerns raised in relation to the vaccine produced by AstraZeneca. Vaccine safety is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Media, Journalism and Film. Our guest today is Dr. Dr. Susan Ellenberg. Ellenberg is a professor of biostatistics, medical ethics, and health policy in the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research has focused on issues in the design and analysis of clinical trials and on the assessment of medical product safety. She's an associate editor of clinical trials as well as the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. Susan, thank you so much for being here today. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, Susan, I'm just delighted to have you back on the program. I mean, you're you know, you're like the the early 30s in terms of an episode. So it's it's wonderful to have you have you back again. But but it's certainly an incredible time to be thinking about about vaccine safety. And and what an amazing development to see a vaccine developed in less than a year and be put into production and use. But but we're now starting to think a little bit about the fact that even post-release, there's a whole system that's available to think about vaccine safety. And so can you talk a little bit about what's done kind of post post-release of vaccines to be monitoring what goes on in terms of the safety of these vaccines? Sure. I, I should say that there's also a system to look at safety of drugs after they're on the market. Any medical mm -hmm. product that's released, we worry about safety because the clinical trials that we do to evaluate the safety and e efficacy before something can be put on the market are, even when they're large, are not large enough to be able to detect rare adverse events that people would want to know about. And that's particularly the case for vaccines. Why is that? When you take a drug, you take it to relieve a symptom or to treat a disease, you you're tend to be willing to accept some level of risk in order for the benefit that you might immediately gain. But vaccines are given to people uh, with no particular immediate health problem that the vaccine is intended to fix. It's a preventive. And so it's given to basically healthy people. You are particularly concerned then about safety issues, about any kind of risks that people might be taking if they took the vaccine. And so we, we have systems in place, and those systems have become more elaborate and, and better uh, over the years, certainly since the time that I was uh, overseeing those systems when I was at the FDA. There's a reporting system. It's called a, a passive surveillance system, the VIRS Adverse Event Reporting System. Anybody who experiences something bad, some kind of adverse event after they get a vaccine, can report that to that system. Or if they report it to their doctor, their doctor might report it. Or if they report it to their doctor and their doctor calls the pharmaceutical company and says, hey, have you ever heard anything like this? The pharmaceutical company then is required by law to report that. If you yourself experience it, you're not required by law to report it. But if it gets to the attention of the company, they're required to report it. So we have this enormous database 
consisting of all manner of reports from all different kinds of people. Susan, what you just described, the general public doesn't know anything about these systems, right? So, you know, the New York Times had an article you probably saw this week, just a couple of days ago, why the vaccine safety numbers are still fuzzy. So we're looking at this, and I actually, my son's girlfriend was supposed to get a Johnson & Johnson vaccine. This She's in her early 20s, supposed to get a vaccine this week, and couldn't. It was canceled. So, But I'm looking at this article, and it says that this, this halt was happened uh, because of these six cases, but there were 6.9 million vaccines given. Now, to, uh, to, to me as a general public person, as, and, and I play that role on this, on this podcast, that seems, this seems like really a low risk. So why, why do, is this a good thing that this got stopped? You know, there's a variety of opinions about whether it's a good thing, opinions from knowledgeable people. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell you there's a right or wrong answer to that, but there's a lot of things that they're doing this week. One thing that they're doing is to see whether there's any basis for saying this risk is limited to mm -hmm. a, a smaller subset of the population. Right now, we know that there are uh, there are six uh, premenopausal women who had this experience. I think since then there's it, there's been identified there's a young man that's also had, you know, had this. But if if they could identify particular risk factors so that within that group maybe the risk isn't one in a million, <clears throat> maybe it's one in ten thousand, which is a lot bigger, still very small. Um, but it, it, it would say, well, maybe these people should not get that vaccine, but everybody else, the risk mm -hmm. is so small as to, be, as to be negligible. You know, everything that we do has risks, and so you have to, you know, you have to be able to balance these things. So that's one thing that they're doing. Another thing that I'm sure they're doing is trying to understand the biology of what happened, to understand whether there really is a plausible basis to connect these events with the vaccine. After all, these, these kinds of things do happen without people being vaccinated on a very rare basis. Now, people have said, well, this is a very particular kind of clot, you know, and that's, that's even more unusual than clots in general. Okay, but there's probably multiple different kinds of clots that are also right. much more rare. So you can't get away from the, you know, from the probability issue and, and mm -hmm. how, you know, we, we were always surprised at coincidences. But as Percy Diaconis and Fred Mosteller said many years ago, there's, you know, way more coincidences than you, than you might imagine. We're, we're living with coincidences all the time. But I think from what I understand, and I, I'm not a biologist or an immunologist or a virologist, but from what I understand, people do think that there's some biological plausibility mm -hmm. that this vaccine might be associated um, with this, this rare adverse effect. And if they, if, they can, if they can't identify a population and say, okay, this is just you know, one in a million kind of thing, my guess is that they'll go ahead and release it. After all, we're subject to risks many times greater than that. And we know that the, the disease itself can cause, uh, can cause clotting and it can be very, very serious. So we're, we're looking at this. We know about this risk because we're looking so carefully uh, in ways that we don't always look 
you know, at other kinds of things that we might um, that we might experience. One of the things you just said was mentioned actually in the Times article where I think one of the experts on this said it's much more likely to get a blood clot from COVID than it is to get it from the vaccine, which I thought was really interesting. Well, that's 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 true. Um, But then, you know, you have somebody, you know, like me, who is not a premenopausal woman, but I'm I'm staying home, you know, so I'm at very low risk of getting COVID no matter what. And, you know, people could decide, well, they're just going to stay home and avoid other kinds of contacts. Um, and then they'll be at a very low risk of COVID and then an even lower risk of, of, of having, the, having the blood clots. You know, everybody has, has a different concept of risk. There are many people who are not yet vaccinated, who are out mixing unmasked with other people. Um, they're willing to take that risk. Um, which is much, much higher than any adverse effect associated with the, with the vaccines. You know, you were talking about the idea that, that potentially risk factors would be identified, sort of subgroups that maybe you wouldn't give this vaccine. But it also, I think I was reading in another article they were talking about, this also helps to identify maybe how to prepare, treat, you know, to have treatments available. You know, knowing if someone were to exhibit this rare outcome, what you would do kind of quickly in response to it. So so this kind of alerting system not only helps you with kind of maybe stratifying who gets what, but also preparing for the, the, the worst thing that might happen. That's exactly right. We've already learned, for example, a, a natural thing to give people who have a blood clot is heparin. But we have found that heparin itself is associated with exactly this kind of clotting problem. And so, you know, after the first few cases, when people started to dig into this, they've learned, no, we're not going to give heparin. We're going to give other kinds of anti-clotting therapy. And, And warning people in advance, you know, will alert them if they start to have these symptoms to get treated quickly. And if you can get treated quickly, you will probably get through this episode without any uh, any long-term sequelae. So that's really important. One of the things I worried about when, when this first came up and people were saying, oh, well, you know, a headache or, you know, something like that. I said, my God, you know, you know, anybody with a headache is going to be rushing to the emergency room. But I think they have narrowed it down somewhat. How often do pauses like this happen when a vaccine has been distributed? Maybe Maybe you don't have a good read on this, but I just wonder if because we're also glued in on the COVID vaccines, that this maybe has caught more of our attention than maybe other moments when a vaccine or a drug has been paused that we just have not known about. Yeah, everything is more visible with these vaccines. Now, I think I've read that there have been other pauses. I'm not familiar with them once it's out on the market. Both the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine clinical trials were paused while the trials were ongoing because of um, a single one or two adverse events that they observed that they wanted to study before, uh, before reopening. And in fact, when the AstraZeneca clinical, tri- clinical trial was paused, the, the trial in the United States was paused as well, and that pause went on a lot longer than the pause in the UK. So it does happen. Many years ago, there was a vaccine for uh, rotavirus um, mm. that was approved, and there were adverse events that were detected 
shortly after it went out, again, through this vaccine adverse event reporting system. Mm -hmm. And that was a signal, and it was studied then in other databases. Um, and I, I don't know, eventually, and it didn't take too long, that vaccine was withdrawn from the market. Whether there was a pause before it was formally withdrawn, I really don't remember. That's something we would have to look up. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about vaccine safety with the University of Pennsylvania's Susan Ellenberg. You know, one of the interesting things about this is always sort of media coverage of these issues. And again, I think, you know, as you were talking about, like, you know, when you saw the news about this coming out and and being worried about people with headaches, you know, rushing to the ER, I I had a Moderna vaccine and I had a headache long after this. And I was like, oh, no, am I having a, you know, it and I it does feel like we're all very tuned in to the coverage of all of these things. What advice would you give to to people as they're consuming news about about the vaccine safety, about these pauses what advice would you give to them as they read these stories to help them keep maybe uh, their sanity a little bit through all of this and maybe not have that moment of, <laughs> of panic and rushing to the ER? I would first remind them that everything they do um, carries some level of risk, uh, and they have to bear that in mind. So far, the risks that have been identified are, are either not serious, you know, some people are going to feel really rotten for a day or two, or perhaps even a couple, even two or three days after the vaccine. <laughs> yeah, my, my, um, my daughter and son-in-law uh, were, uh, both got a J&J vaccine. They're in the two-dose trial, which the mm. results of which haven't yet been uh, released. And they, they both were pretty sick. Uh, I think one of them run, ran a fever of 103. Um, in the day after they, they got the vaccine. So these, but these things are well known. We know uh, that vaccines cause fevers, they cause headaches, they cause soreness, they cause swelling. Those are the kinds of things we know. And we also know that, again, very rarely, they cause a serious allergic or anaphylactic reaction. And that's why they make you sit in the place where you got the vaccine for 15 minutes. I had to sit for 30 minutes because I have asthma. So if you have any kind of, any kind of thing like that, they make you sit a little bit longer to make sure you're not going to have that kind of reaction. With those kinds of reactions, we're not worried about whether the vaccine caused it, we're pretty sure the vaccine caused it. People don't just get an anaphylactic reaction walking down the street, you know, coincidentally. Uh, and their arm doesn't usually swell up, you know, with no other, uh, you know, of course they could get bitten by an insect and that could cause it, but, you know, without any other obvious cause. So those are not, we, we know about those, those are, those are rare risks. But what people should take out of what's happened here is that, People are looking very closely at the experience that people have had after they get vaccinated. And this is what they've come up with, something that may be as, as infrequent as one in a million. That should be very reassuring to people. So I, I have a question about something you referred to earlier. So the pause is about, you know, is this, a, are these, is this particular kind of clotting a coincidence or a pre-existing condition? How how much uncertainty can we live with? I mean, when can the pause be lifted? How much work has to be done here to sort of reassure uh, folks? Well, the, the, the people who are looking at this carefully, people at the FDA and CDC and their advisors, are going to be looking at this from lots of different angles. And, you know, I'll be very comfortable with whatever they come up with. We may never be absolutely sure. But, you know, this is what we live with in our life. 
you know, we're never absolutely sure of anything. When you get in your car, you put on your seatbelt, right? Because we're all very confident that you're safer. If you're in an accident, right, if you're wearing a seatbelt, you're safer. However, mm -hmm. there are certain types of accidents that you're less safe if you're wearing a seatbelt. Yeah. That's a much that's a small percentage of accidents. But you know, are you not going to wear a seatbelt because maybe you're going to be in that kind of accident? No, of course you're going to do, you know, that's going to protect you from what's the greater risk. And and that that that's the kind of thinking that should, you know, inform people about vaccines. What's the greater risk? Right now, the greater risk is clearly getting getting COVID. Even people who who don't get really sick right away. We've seen that there are people who get seriously ill later uh, and they have symptoms that, you know, that could be worse for a long time, even people who are basically asymptomatic at the beginning. This is a very scary pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the way we're going to solve this pandemic is for as many people as possible to get vaccinated, then the virus won't be able to transmit It'll be, it'll be shut back from transmitting and eventually it will ebb. And, and that's what we're all looking forward to. We don't want to protect ourselves by having to stay in our house and not see anybody for the rest of our lives. You know, you, t you were talking about these, these risk comparisons. And this, this seems, this is a really hard problem. It's really, you know, because I, th I think that a lot of people just, just assume that, oh, I've got this intervention, so risk is zero. I think it's that, that we almost, there's, there's almost this, hope this 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 incredible hope that that's it but it's not i mean you know there's i was just reading that the, about the cases of of people that were fully vaccinated that got the disease well that does happen it's not it's not it doesn't push things to zero it makes it awfully small it may help with with you know suppressing more severe experience with the disease if you do get it and you know i how, how do you help people understand that zero is not achievable in, in this kind of risk? It's an issue. You know, when something is, a, is approved by the regulatory agency, the word is that it's safe and effective. What does that mean? Effective never means 100% effective, and safe never means 100% safe. It means safe enough for what, what the product does. We have products that we give to people who are seriously ill who can't, that can kill them. Yeah. You know, you have a, a child with, with, um, with cancer. Uh, there are very intensive drugs that those children get, and some children will not survive the therapy. Now, if you, if you are taking an antihistamine and somebody tells you there's a 10% chance that you'll die from this antihistamine, you're not going to take that antihistamine. You'd rather have a runny nose for the rest of your life than take something that's going to have but if But if you have a 95% chance of dying in the next three months, and there's a medication that can reduce that to 20%, but that medication has a small chance of, of, of being so toxic that that's going to kill you, you're going to take it right? You're balancing the risks and benefits all the time. For vaccines, the risks have to be very, very low, but people don't expect that that's not zero. And, you know, if we, if we don't say safe, if we say safe enough, you know, maybe that's going to scare people, you know? Um, it, it, it's safe compared to everything else we do in our, in our daily lives and the risks that we take. You know, you, you talked about this earlier when you were saying the thing that's special or different about vaccines is it's typically healthy people 
that are that don't have any other symptoms. So the idea that here I am that that I'm healthy, but yet yet I'm taking something that might have risk seems somewhat different, like than the than the example that you just provided. Right, it's true, and we have drugs like that. Okay, um, people, many many people, gazillions of people take a statin. They don't take a statin mm -hmm. to cure mm -hmm. something that they have. They take a statin to prevent a bad cardiovascular outcome, and there are clinical trials that have proven um, that they do that. But they have side effects, and so, you know, people may be more uh, hesitant to, t to start on something like that, which is going to prevent something that they don't know they're ever going to get anyway, mm -hmm. um, than to take an antihistamine, which is going to make their nose stop running, which they will really appreciate. Uh, mm -hmm. as someone who has allergies. Yeah. Uh, I can, I can uh, testify to that. Yeah, so, so with a vaccine, it, it's, it's even more so. You don't know whether you're going to get the disease, right? And if you do get the disease, you don't know if you're going to be one of the ones who gets really sick. And in fact, if you get the vaccine and don't ever get the disease, you, you don't know whether you wouldn't have gotten it anyway. Right? You, you can never be sure that you're the one who benefited from that vaccine. What you can be sure of is that society is benefiting from your getting the vaccine. Because the more people that get the vaccine, the less people there are going to be who are going to get infected and the less transmission there's going to be, and it's going to, it's going to go down. That's how we got rid of the epidemics of measles. That's how we got rid of uh, the epidemics of polio, by basically vaccinating everybody. So that's what you can be sure of, that you're, you're helping everybody else, even if you don't know that you personally will have benefited. You, you mentioned there the, uh, you know, the more of us, you know, the more of us that get the vaccine, the better, of course. So this is a more of a general question on how we deal with the sort of anti-vax vaccine movement that's out there, that's, the, that's rife in social media. Um, is there a number that we got to we got to get to, uh, and how do we, how do we fight that mentality? I mean, I think this is a problem, big problem. It's, it's very hard. Of course, there's vaccine. There's there's the out and out anti-vax people, and then there's the vaccine hesitant people, mm -hmm. and, and those are different groups. And you can deal with the latter perhaps more easily than the former. Um, before I went to work at the FDA, I, I was working in the Division of AIDS in the early days of treatment for HIV AIDS. And some of you may remember, if you're old enough, that there was, there was a lot of flack from the AIDS activist community. They thought all of us in the government were murderers. We were doing yeah. terrible things. Um, you know, we weren't doing anything right. We needed to get people more rapid access to drugs. And, and, and it, was pretty, it was pretty scary for those of us in, in, in doing that. But when I saw some of the, some of the um, material that, the, that those activists produced, it actually sounded pretty reasonable. You know, mm -hmm. the kinds of things that they, they wanted to make clinical trials more acceptable to the community. And a lot of suggestions that they had, I remember reading this and thinking to myself, you mean we're not doing it that way? Why aren't we doing it that way? And, and it started a dialogue which was extremely effective. And the AIDS activists actually became the strongest advocates for good, rigorous, sound research that was going to tell them which drugs were worth having in their medicine cabinet and which ones were not. They wanted to know that. 
wasn't going to do them any good to have 100 drugs available to them if they didn't know which ones worked. So that was really important. So when I went to FDA, there was already a very strong um, anti-vax movement, mostly from parents whose children had suffered something after they had gotten a vaccine, and they were absolutely 100% certain that the vaccine had caused it. And I thought, well, I, you know, had some success with the AIDS activists, maybe there's something to be gained from, from reaching out. And what I, what I learned there is that the grief of a parent um, when something bad has happened to their child um, is not something that can be you know, overcome in many cases by some kind of reasonable discussion. The, these, these, many of these people are dealing with the grief about what happened to their child by feeling like they're helping other parents, by making them aware of, of, of the bad things that can happen if your ch children are vaccinated. I mean, they, they're, they're very sincere. So talking about coincidences, talking about, you know, all, all of the kinds of things that have happened to try and persuade people that MMR vaccine doesn't cause autism and uh, DTP vaccine doesn't cause SIDS and, the, and, the, and, and thimerosal, the mercury preservative, doesn't cause problems. Even the data that have emerged, you know, putting children to sleep on their backs instead of on their stomachs drastically reduced the risk of, uh, of SIDS. You know, that should have told people that it's not the vaccine, you know? But those kinds of data didn't, because I, I think the grief goes too strong. This is what is giving, for some of them, giving their life some meaning after something bad happened to their child. And so it's difficult. But the vaccine-hesitant people who hear some of these stories, and there's a lot of them out there, you know, when my my grandchildren now are, are, um, are all moving into adolescence, but when my children were younger and they were first having their children, they would, they would come to me with stories of their colleagues, you know, people who were in academia, people with PhDs who were saying, didn't your mom do something with vaccine safety? Should I worry about giving my, you know, my baby is going to be born. Should I worry about giving them these vaccines? So, you know, these stories get to people, even highly educated people. They just, they just don't know. So it's really important for people to understand something about vaccine safety and what we can and can't assume by hearing some of these stories about bad things that did happen to children. The first year of life is the most dangerous year that there is. Bad things happen to little kids, and they're vaccinated multiple times during the first year of life. Mm -hmm. So you are going to have bad things happen just in the same way as with the COVID vaccines. Who were the first people to get COVID vaccines? People in nursing homes, people mm -hmm. over the age of 75. What's their risk of death? What's the risk of death of somebody who's 82 years old? So people look in the and, and they see that there are people who died after getting a vaccine. You know, <laughs> that's expected. We know the vaccine doesn't protect people from anything other than getting COVID. Doesn't prevent you from having a heart attack. It doesn't prevent you from having a stroke. Doesn't prevent you from um, anything else that kills people who are, you know, who are old and have all of these risk factors. 
Well, Susan, that is all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for joining us today. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. 